Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. And this is User-Friendly 2.0. we got a great show for you this week. Steve Mailer is going to be joining us a little later with his guest. We've got a special extended question and answer section of the show this week. Keep sending us your questions. We're getting a lot of good ones. And you send them in, you can call us at 503-766-6264. There's also a way to do it online. You can use social media, which is one user-friendly on Facebook or Twitter, or go to userfriendlynation.com. All of those allow you to go on, put your question together, ask it. We can use it on the air. And if you want to be on the air, we can even do that too sometimes. Depends on what everybody's into. Got a great news section for you coming up this week. Some things that are going on that are just a touch controversial. And these have been some questions that have come in. So with no further ado, let's move on to the news. Did you know that President Biden extended the individual health insurance open enrollment period? Don't miss this opportunity to review your health insurance with Megan Thornton at Northwest Benefit Strategies. Give her a call at 503-925-5955 or visit her website, northwestbenefitstrategies.com. So what's in the news today? Starting this fall, you will need to dial all 10 digits for local calls. Yeah, and this is not new for some markets. There are places around the country right now where this is already a thing, but it's going to be required nationwide. And what's going on here is the dates are April 24th of this year. Callers that can't do it right now will be able to use 10 digits to make telephone calls for local calls. And if you just dial the seven digits at that point, your call will still go through. Beginning October 24th, however, you have to dial 10 digits. If you do the seven digits after that date, you will just get a recording that the call didn't go through. And what this is for is beginning in July of next year, July of 2022, there's going to be a national three-digit number, 988, that will route your call to the National Suicide Prevention and Mental Health Crisis Lifeline. This is to replace the 800 number, although the 800 number will still work at that point, the idea being that it works from everywhere. But in order to get this to work, all uh, uh, areas that currently have the seven-digit call will have to go to the 10-digit. And to find out if you're in one of those areas, you can look online. In fact, we'll go ahead and throw that up on our social media, that link, so you can see the details on what's going on here. Cricket wants you to pay for unlimited use on a machine you already own. So let's start. What is a Cricket? Cricket is a vinyl cutting machine, kind of like a, like a printer, but it has a little razor blade and you put in rolls of vinyl. You use their software their proprietary software, to control the cutter like you would with an um, inkjet or laser jet printer. Okay. Is this a hobby machine? Mm-hmm. or Okay. Well, you, I mean, you can use it for cutting signs and decals and all kinds of things, like, you know, all the little stickers on windows. Yeah. But, yeah, then they want you to start paying for using it. So you would what, – what would that mean? You'd have to buy it and then you'd have to pay to use it too? You That's what to, it sounds like. You get a certain number of uses, like you, like you can use it 20 times – um, and then you have to start paying for it. Okay, well, I can see where I, that would bother some people, especially if they uh-huh. bought it thinking it was unlimited. Yeah, it's and it's it's the access to the software. So I'm for sure somebody somewhere is going to come up with a way to get around that. Oh, yeah, because it's kind of. I'm sorry, you have to. Uh, uh, oh, you bought your car. Okay, it's paid for, but well, no, we got to give you. You know, you got to get permission to uh, 
you know, turn that turn signal on every time. And <laughs> don't think they're not trying to do that. That is actually a thing, too. Uh, I so, think that's crazy, and know, I think that makes people angry. <laughs> yeah, this is this is actually something that ties into what are called over-the-air updates. Uh, in uh-huh. the case of the of the cricket, it would be over-the-internet updates. But this idea where they can change what you have after you buy it, and it is something that definitely people are not real happy about being told that they can only do a certain amount of things with something they already own. And on the car side of it, they want to make it where. Say you have heated seats and you have to pay every month a subscription so that they'll actually work. Same idea. And uh, so uh, my attitude would be, what's the point? Yeah, it's not going over well. Let's just say. <laughs> Google lawsuit regarding incognito mode can continue. So can you explain this? So when you're using your browser, if you go into incognito mode, it should give the impression, at least it does for me, of being incognito, right? Google Chrome has this mode, and it's something that when you go into it, it gives the idea that you're browsing privately. Now, Jeremy, you've used this too. I know I have. Would you have gotten the feeling from it that you had private browsing when you had it turned on? Uh, Aside from the color change to the browser and the little icon being like a little spy or somebody who's trying to hide, um, yeah, yeah, I would think so. I mean, it, it gives you the idea that what you're doing is not going to be tracked because it's incognito. Well, it turns out that many Google Chrome users agree with us. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's a class action lawsuit about this because Google's saying, wait, no, <laughs> not so much. It's not that private. The incognito mode does actually keep the browsing history private. So where you go on the web, incognito is not logged to your history on your browser. You can't go back to a track back, that kind of a thing. However, all of the other tracking stuff still works. So cookies and other mechanisms from websites to see who you are, these different type of things still operate. And what Google's saying is, well, it's in our terms of service. It's in our privacy policy. You should know. And the court's like, well, that's a very long document, and it's known that most people don't read it. And the bottom line of it is, is this class action suit can go on. So they're allowing it to continue. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with this. Twitter banning users for 12 hours. For using the word Memphis. I'm sorry, you said Memphis, you're banned for 12 hours. Mm-hmm, yeah, good luck. <laughs> Twitter, really strange. Twitter and other social media use AI for trying to monitor what's on their site. And lately, with all of the stuff that's been going on, this has been really ramped up. But this is an example of how, when they're trying to censor their platform, things can go awry. And in this case, if you use the word Memphis in any tweet, like Memphis, Tennessee, I went to Memphis, that kind of thing, your account was automatically banned for 12 hours for violation of their policy. Twitter's saying it was a bug. They were saying that they fixed it and everything's back to normal and have posted an apology. But it does go to show the difference between AIs and how some are a little more advanced than others. Yeah. Um, kind of. I'm just curious why Memphis barbecue would be a bad idea. I Memphis don't know. barbecue? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Netflix wants to stop password sharing. What this is, is the Netflix streaming app, for as long as it's been around, has sold its subscriptions based on the number of screens you can use simultaneously. And these are set up as to one, two, or four, and it depends on the subscription cost. Obviously, the more screens, the more it costs to have it. But there's never been a limitation of where you can use these screens. So in other words, if we have a two-screen service, I can watch it here in Oregon, and you can watch it down where you are in Nevada at the same time. Or at work. Or at work or, you know, any of those type of things. What they're testing, air quotes, 
is this idea that if it switches between networks, so this wouldn't be the screens in your house, but switches between networks, you have to go to a phone or another authentication device and say that, yes, this is my account. And then it gives you this spiel on how the account can only be used by the account owner. And if you're not the account owner, you should get your own subscription, yada, 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 right? So um, Mm. that is uh, something that is not going over too well with Netflix users. And it seems like this is an idea of kind of maybe Netflix is a little out of touch right now to put this type of a thing in in the middle of a pandemic when people are struggling. Exactly. And trying to to save money and just, just trying to decompress from maybe a difficult day or trying to um, have a, a, a system that works for within your family. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's it just, just seems, it just seems like a really bad idea right now, especially. Yeah. They're saying in the longer term that this will be something that will cause them to have more subscribers, even though it's going to upset users now. And they're expecting that to be the case. But um, I, I don't know. I, I know with Hulu, I ran into the same type of thing where it was just logging me out sometimes. And I, didn't want to sit down and watch television and have to figure out a username and a password every time I turned it on. So um, when they actually raised their rates a few months ago, another 10 bucks, I actually dumped them and went to a different service. And I had the cable TV version of it, so it was the more expensive one, you know? Yeah, we've been having problems with Hulu as well. And my mom, who's a senior, she's getting frustrated with it. And so um, I think we're going to consider at some point fairly soon getting rid of the Hulu and trying something else. So streaming media providers don't make it difficult. That's the whole concept of cord cutting is that you're not locked into these things. And now's not a good time to raise rates. Wait until the economy gets back. This is User Friendly 2.0. We've got a great show for you this week. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. We've got a special extended Q&A this week. Keep your questions coming. We love to answer them here on the air. What is our first question? What is the difference between Office 365 and Office 2019? So this is a listener question, and this goes to do with the idea of subscription software versus software that you buy and have. Now, it's important to note that in most cases, you don't ever actually own software. You're buying a license to use it. At least that's the way that it generally works. And a lot of companies have figured out that if you pay monthly and they can get you to do it, you'll actually pay more in the long term. There's advantages and disadvantages to both. Office 2019 is the version, the most current version of Office where you buy a license and you install it and it's yours to use under that license and there's no monthly fees. It runs about $250 for the business version, $150 suggested retail price for the home version. There are some differences between Office and Home, but that's what this is. Office 365 charges a monthly fee or an annual fee, depending on how you set it up. And it costs a lot less out of the gate, but you are paying for it as long as you're using the software. Advantages and disadvantages of this, if you buy a version, that's the version you have. Usually there's some updates to go with it, but if they go to a new major revision level, you would have to buy a new license to be able to upgrade, where on the subscription version, it's included. Hmm. You can tell I've got the not thrilled face. Okay. 
<laughs> how, do, how do you host a podcast? Yeah, another listener question. There's two actual answers to this host like we're hosting the show. But what they were actually asking about here is how you make your podcast available so that people can listen to it on demand, that kind of hosting. So okay. in the sense of like website hosting, it's that idea. And there are a number of services out there that do this. Basically, what you would do is pick one that you like. Some are free, some cost a monthly fee. Uh, we use one that's a commercial one that uh, is owned by a company called Rebel Base Media. And they have been really good with customer support, all that kind of thing. We post our episodes. They have them available. They have tools to allow us to distribute to the different podcast platforms that are out there. So that if you live, listen, say on Spotify or TuneIn or something else, all of those different ones carry the podcast and you don't have to sit and submit each week to each different one. So it's about the features that you need and that type of thing. But that's how you do it. So you record, get everything ready. And then you find one of these services, upload the file to the service, put in the description, artwork, all that kind of stuff, and then use it to get it out to anybody that would want to listen to it. Is telehealth safe? Telehealth has really come into its own during COVID. Telehealth, for anybody that doesn't know about it, is the ability to securely meet with your doctor, medical provider, uh, whatever you would need to do through the internet. So it's basically a video conference call to your doctor. And it seems like, for the most part, as much as things can be online, this is pretty safe. I am always of the opinion that as soon as you connect to the internet, there's always the possibility that someone can hack it. You know, the security of it is like a big lock on your front door. I've said that before. The better the lock, the more likely they are to go somewhere else. Health is one of the bits of information that the bad guys certainly are trying to come after. But for the most part, it seems like it works and it works pretty well. It's definitely a more safe way to be able to visit a doctor, especially with COVID, so you don't have to go outside and deal with all of that. There's obviously some things they can't do by telehealth, so sometimes an in-person visit is still required, but this seems to be more and more a way to go and a way to go that works pretty well. How many streaming services do you subscribe to? Listener question. Uh, this has to go with the news item we were talking about with Netflix trying to crack down on password sharing. And there's a lot of them out there. There's streaming fatigue. That's actually a thing now. <laughs> and it's interesting to think about this. So, okay, how many streaming services do I subscribe to? I think five, five different ones. I don't know. How many do you guys subscribe to? Okay. So we, I'm thinking, I think we have four. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And yes. uh, so, you know, and each one. Is what ten bucks a month, give or take a little bit. Some are a little less. Some are a little. Some more. are more if you have Hulu in the yeah. mix. Hulu is one of the more expensive ones if you do the television channel cable t uh, television version of it, live TV. Um, Hulu still has their content library option too, which is cheaper, but they have raised their price recently. So you know, it just depends on what you're doing and what you want, and it is worth taking the time to figure out what content you want. Because you can have some choice here. If you're into sports, you might get ESPN+. Plus. If you're not, then get a service that doesn't have the sport channel so you don't have to pay for it anyway. That type of a thing. But yeah, in answer to that question, uh, I'm at five and you're at four. And that seems to be a bit about the average. Some people have a lot more. Hmm. Is it possible to get a PlayStation 5 yet? Did a little checking on this because this is a good question. Is it possible? Yes. It depends on how much money you want to spend. You can buy them from scalpers on sites like eBay. 
But to actually buy one, go to a big box retailer such as Best Buy or something like that, uh, they don't seem to have them in stock yet. And this is the same thing for the new Xbox. As of today, at least everything's still showing is sold out. They had said that they were going to get more in in February and it would become more normal to buy them. Well, it's March and it doesn't seem like we've gotten there yet. So I'm going to do some poking around and see if I can find out what is happening to our new game consoles. I know that one of the problems that they've been having worldwide is a chip shortage, so that might be playing into this in some way. What is a good app to track to-do lists? You know, there's a number of them out there. I use Todoist, T-O-D-O-I-S-T, and it seems to work pretty well between all my devices. You can enter a to-do item in one place. It shows up on your phone automatically and that type of thing once you set up the app. Works with the smart speakers. There's a number of different choices out there for this, though, and it just depends on what you're doing and kind of what works best for you. Apple has their own version of this, as a for example. Basic thing, but having it work well is good. And some of the features you can get where it will automatically do reminders, follow ups. There are some softwares that allow you to share a to do item to other people. I know in the programming world, we use this a lot to keep track of milestones and project points and all that kind of stuff and software we're working on. And, you know, it's just about I what you need. Paper. I use paper and a pen. <laughs> well, well, there is that, but that won't automatically share with your phone. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Jeremy and Gretchen, I understand you read a book. Yeah. And it's a Star Wars book, too. No, this is my shocked (laughs) face. Um. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, and, you know, um, I was really pleased to see that um, Timothy Zahn did another book. I, I really like his writing. So when I saw Star Wars Thrawn, Ascendancy, Chaos Rising, I had to get it. Okay, so everybody who is a Star Wars fan, you're going to want to read this, especially if you're a Thrawn fan. If you're a Thrawn fan, it's a must. Um, It basically goes into uh, Thrawn's past back home amongst the Chiss people. Now, for a long time, there was no data uh, about the Chiss. And I'd actually done research to for my own stories to understand more about the Chiss, and I couldn't find any. So he's laying out who the Chiss are, their culture. He explains um, the naming conventions, why uh, Thrawn's name is the way it is, what family he belongs to, the culture, the politics. He's really developing a rich background for this character, which... Um, that's one of the things that I like about some of the Star Wars stuff is that they're building beautiful, almost like tapestries of who these people are. Um, we also get to meet uh, Admiral R. Alani. She's one of uh, Thrawn's supporters, almost like a friend or a comrade, you might say. Um, we also get exposed to Thrawn's skills and downfalls. So we get to see how he became what he is now in the in the present time. 
And he also has developed a lot of enemies there. It's not just the Imperials who are looking at him like, who's that weird guy in the blue? And now it's, it's his own people are going, I don't like him. Yeah, I know. He's he a big time much. bad guy. I, I do know that. Um, and the weird thing is, is he's a bad guy, but I'm not really convinced that he really is a bad guy. I think he's got a different way of viewing the world and people just don't relate to him. And he's, I think he's going, I think his reason, I'm guessing, his reason for joining the Empire probably has a very altruistic um, I, I, premise behind it. Right, right. That I think he wants to save the Chiss people from some kind of threat. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to um, seeing what he, uh, what, Ad, um, what Timothy Zahn comes up with next for Admiral Thrawn. And um, so I finished the book. It's a must. Now I've, I've been putting this off and I'm not real excited about the High Republic. Okay. This is a new thing that's just recently come up. It's not an old thing. Right. And um, I, I have just that kind of meh feeling I get about it. But I thought, you know, Maybe I had to give at least it a chance and look into it. And I saw that Claudia Gray had written a book called uh, Into the Dark. And I like Claudia Gray in the, in the past when she's written Star Wars stuff. So I thought, why don't I give her a chance? Right. So I'm, I'm working on this book. The first chapter is a little slow. And so it hasn't really grabbed me, but... Um, from what I understand, when it comes to the Star Wars universe, uh, the writers don't always get complete choice of how it's going to go. Uh, they may be required to write things a certain way. So that makes it, I think, really tough for the writers. And so I'll tell you about that next time. Then I happen to have come across a documentary Okay. while I was watching TV. And it's uh, it's a National Geographic documentary, and it's directed by Ron Howard. And it's a reality, it's almost like a reality show with no host. Okay. And it's actually told through all of the people who experienced this campfire that destroyed Paradise, California. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I would warn anybody who wants to watch this. Better get a big, big box of Kleenex. Right, right. What they what they went through was intense. You will not have a dry eye. Right. No, I think it's definitely worth watching. I mean, one of our reporters lived in Paradise and lost his house, so you know that hit close to home in our own family. Yeah, and uh, this was this was really something. All right, everybody, check it out. This is User Friendly Two Point We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Joining us now, Steve Mailer. Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen, thanks as always, guys. Today, I'm going to introduce you to something that's a little bit different for me in the uh, media production world. This is something that I've been doing since around 2010, working as a, what you would consider 
a legal videographer. And my guest today is someone that I share a little bit of that past with. He's an associate I met maybe seven or eight years ago. Really, really nice guy named Stuart Campbell. And Stuart does a lot of interesting things that um, I've always been curious about. And he he not only is what I would consider a a legal video specialist, but he also does a lot of uh, live media streamings, which I which I think is very interesting. Mr. Campbell, welcome to User Friendly, sir. Oh, thank you for having me on. No, no worries. It's um, I know we've been trying to get together to do this for a couple of weeks. You are uh, a pretty busy guy as things work out. So now the way that you and I met, as I just alluded to, was um, we're both involved in the the legal video community of recording video depositions for testimony for actual cases and you also do you also do a lot of what we consider audiovisual courtroom support for presenting this testimony and recorded material before juries so how did you how did you start doing legal videography funny enough back in the uk my sister is actually a barrister and still wears her horsehair wig and gown into court. Really? And yeah, <laughs> very traditional. Oh my gosh. And I was obviously thinking when I was here in the States, uh, kind of what could I be doing film wise to earn some pennies? And she recommended, she knew a, a lawyer here locally in Reno and suggested that, you know, basically, you know, I should get into doing some legal video work to help kind of pay my rent and bills. There you go. Well, you know, it's a, it's a really, I found it, I have found it to be a wonderful profession, actually. Exactly. It's actually very interesting. It is. You come across. It is. I mean, and, um, you know, some of them are, you know, extremely dry and boring and other ones are, they're very engaging and it's almost like you're, you're involved in a live soap opera. And it's, it's amazing what you learn as well. It is. Every, every case is so different. You know, and, and being able to kind of sit back and observe this, you know, through video is it's really interesting. In all honesty, they still wear those the they still wear the wigs and everything in in the UK. <laughs> they, do. they do indeed. That would have been if someone had asked me that as a Jeopardy question or as as a game show question, I would have gotten that wrong. They do like to maintain their tradition, so I guess in some ways that doesn't surprise me too much, but um, I, I still would have gotten that wrong. Um, so, so there's the one side of doing legal videography as recording testimony, such as at a, as a, at a deposition, but you also do a lot of audiovisual courtroom support. So when you're, when you're in court, because I've done that a few times, but I haven't done that a lot of times. When you're taking right. when you're taking the testimony that you've recorded and you're presenting that to the jury, are you doing that for both the plaintiff and the defense, or are you hired by one side? Usually by one side um, to do obviously the trial tech work in court. Okay, and you use a, a particular type of software to do that, correct? Yeah, there's some different software out there. Um, you know, to obviously. To be able to do it, but yes, it's really to aid the lawyers in there and help them focus on obviously presenting their case to the jury. And you're there to kind of really emphasize and yes, you know, have the exhibits in order. Okay. And help them so they're not having to really worry about that. Right. How how um how pressured is that for you? It can be kind of 
pressuring at some point. Definitely, you've got to be with it for sure. Yeah, and keep up with exactly what the lawyer um, wow. needs and requires. Okay, and so aside from the the legal stuff that that you and I have done. You're also involved in other types of like a real live streaming or a media streaming aspect of your company. Tell us about that. Um, I got very into the, the tech side of um, obviously video streaming and where it's going um, probably about nine years ago uh, before things like Facebook Live. I wanted to find ways of um, being able to approach events and, you know, rather than bringing in a whole satellite truck to do it online and it really kind of started to take off about nine years ago because it was more affordable and then more the up, uh, software and hardware all kind of caught up with itself where we were able to go in and kind of make these events you know um, more affordable to broadcast and um, obviously having that uh, how would you describe that um, having the guests actually be able to become part of these shows as well so you're doing this through the use of a, a fully equipped satellite truck? That's that's how you're streaming? No. Oh, 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 okay. What I was saying was, yeah, cutting down the cost of satellite trucks and now doing everything online via things like Facebook Live, etc. Okay. Like that. So, so when you're doing a live media stream, are you doing it through the use of, of multiple cameras and some kind of switcher that are then plugged into a computer and then everything gets encoded and streamed live? Is that is that kind of how that's Correct. put together? Okay. So it's basically taking things like software like Livestream Studio, which is now like a virtual studio on your laptop, which is obviously a switcher compared to the days of having a big newsroom kind of obviously, you know, switching desk and scaling it right down to the size of a laptop with multiple cameras, uh, like PTZ cameras, um, okay. plugged in, and yeah. <laughs> so with as so, you just mentioned a PTZ camera. That so that's essentially your you are controlling that. I mean, as the tech, because basically, if you're running the switcher, you're you're what in an old studio system would be referred to as a technical director, where you're actually doing the live switching. If you're oh, using right. and so and you're so you're using PTZ camera, so you're not really actually using a crew because you're that's a remote controlled camera where you're controlling zoom, focus, movement of the camera. You're actually doing all of that yourself. Yes, depending on the size of the event, you know, sometimes having more people in. But for for example, church services, I try to scale it right down and having crew multitask. And yes, be a technical director, wow. the camera operator, and creating the graphics themselves. You know, so you're really with the times trying to be a, a much more of a multitasker. Oh my gosh. Okay, because that's, that's, I mean, that's kind of what I had in mind, but I wasn't sure just, um, you know, the, the mode or how you were putting things together as... Uh, as a live production, because I mean, you you mentioned. I mean, I know that you and I have talked, but you do things like for the Reno Rodeo, you do church groups, you do just all kinds of aspects of of live streaming. Well, Stuart, as as I'm not surprised that you're kind of a one man band or uh, a guy who wears many hats. Um, but I do appreciate you being with us here on User Friendly today, and we're going to catch up some more because it's been too long since we've talked. But I do appreciate you being on our show today. Steve. All right. You take care, sir. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Indeed. Bill, Jeremy, and Gretchen, guys, take it away. 
Steve, thank you. We'll be back after the break. Welcome back. This is User Friendly 2.0. Great show this week. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting because we're actually looking at the possibility of having some in-person events. And it's looking like this fall could be very busy if things are safe, which we all mm-hmm. hope they are. A lot of stuff is being put back on the calendar. Now, the first one I'm going to talk about is a virtual event again this year, and that's the San Diego Comic-Con. They're going to be going three days. They're shortening it a little bit just because of economics of not being able to do the in-person events. And that'll be from July 23rd to 21st. And you can go to comic-con.org to get the details on that. And might be something kind of worth seeing from home. I think we'll go ahead and take a look at it and see what they're doing. They are talking about some in-person events this fall. Uh, We don't have the details on that yet, but as soon as we do, we'll let you know what they are. But Three other events have come back onto the calendar, and right now, at least at this moment, they're planning an in-person event. The first one is the Star Trek convention in Las Vegas, August 11th to 15th. Now, I think I would have a lot of fun. Well, yeah, 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 that's gonna be cool, and that's gonna be very warm. So wear your skimpy costumes. (laughs) Yeah, or get a hotel room in the same hotel. I believe it's the Rio where the um, convention is being held, so that you don't have to walk outside to get from one end to the other. And please confirm that. Uh, because I know they've moved it a couple of times. But Las Vegas, we all live down there for a short time. In the summer, it is very hot. Very hot. And if you're in something with a lot of makeup and all that kind of thing, that would be unpleasant. Or black, yeah. where it soaks the sun. Heat will soak into your costume. Mm-hmm. I know that from being Nihilus. Star Trek nope. uniforms are mostly black. <laughs> yep. And I know I got the closest I ever got to that was wearing my Wookiee suit in Sacramento in July. That oh, time. Oh, yes, that was, that was awful. That was just... <laughs> Oh. Crazy? <laughs> yes. That was crazy. I'll, remember the 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 uh, was it the Rebel Legion people or was it the five hundred first said you did what? Yeah, <laughs> they all did. Yeah, yeah. and uh, they, they thought I was insane, and I think they uh-huh. were right. I mean, my goodness, it was. I was going to walk from the hotel to the convention center, which I did in the morning while it was still not the hottest part of the day. And the hotel, I think, was two blocks away. And when we went back, I took a cab. It was just like this is not going to work. And, uh, you know, yeah, so, I was with you. It was hot. Time. Speaking <laughs> of alien creatures, the McMinnville UFO Festival is going to be on this year, September 23rd to 25th. This is not one we've seen yet. We planned to go. And then last year, of course, it got canceled because of COVID restrictions. So if they do that, we're going to be there and we'll come up with some kind of a new alien costume for that one. And then the Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle is going to be held in December. So for this one, you'll want to have a costume that includes an umbrella. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I've, I don't think I've ever been to Seattle in December. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It rains a lot and it can snow too. So yeah, you know, that's that what I was concerned about. Yeah. So we'll cool. keep you apprised on all of that. This yeah. is user-friendly 2.0 until next week, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-friendly 2.0 copyright 2014 to 2021 user-friendly media group, Inc. The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily user-friendly media group, Inc. or the station. Music licensing by BMI. Hosting provided by wearetechnology.com. Podcast available at userfriendlynation.com, theanswerportland.com, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.